The music you hear on the Boombox Show was loaned for the purposes of promotion and remains the property of its composers, artists, and record labels. My name is Joseph Dean Coburn, and I created The Boombox Show. The Boombox Show belongs to the baby boomer generation. It's made up of memories and bits and pieces of the past that no one under 60 gets. A bottle of Coke for 10 cents, candy cigarettes, sugar babies, sugar daddies. We remember why the British invasion scared our parents so badly when all they were doing was making music. But baby boomers are the reason why for everything you see, hear, and feel. From Andy Warhol to rhythm and blues. This is the Boombox Show. Turn it up. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it up, baby. Shake it, baby. 
the program that never crashes. The Boombox. I used to work in the concert business, along with my partner, the late Jimmy Jet McHale. He and I ran the Paramount Theaters in Seattle and Portland. So as a result, I knew all the people in the business who worked all the other venues. Well, when The Who played in the Coliseum one night, they were using the Rolling Stones' old uh, star stage. And since everybody who worked the, the front line, you know, the line between the barricade and the stage itself, worked for me in informal security, I knew them, and they let me stand between the barricade and the edge of the stage. So I was right on the edge of the stage. And every time there was a quiet moment, every time there was just a pause between songs or even a break in the middle of a song where suddenly it went silent, I would scream out at the top of my lungs, Moon! And Keith Moon would look at me and he'd point his drumstick at me. It was so cool. And all the guys working security kept going, Coburn, shut up.
a slum of a decade, as John Updike called it. 1968 was the desperate year when a gloom zone settled over most of America. It was a year when dreams died for Lyndon Johnson, for Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, for Alexander Dubček and Charles de Gaulle, for Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey, for the presidents of Columbia University and a dozen other colleges, for Lloyd Bucher and the men of the Pueblo, for the children of Biafra, for 14,592 American soldiers in Vietnam and for 500 citizens of the village of My Lai, although the facts, the trial, and the meaning of that massacre would belong to the 70s. The ultimate, perhaps tragic irony, wrote Tom Wicker of the New York Times, is that Lyndon Johnson came into office seeking a great society and found instead an ugly little war that consumed him. 
The fatal coincidence was that while the communist Tet Offensive knocked the breath out of the American high command, that mystical poet and senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, chose New Hampshire in the months of February and March to challenge his party's leadership. I'm hopeful that this challenge which I am making, which I hope will be supported by other members of the Senate and other politicians, may alleviate at least in some degree this sense of political helplessness and restore to many people a belief in the processes of American politics and of American government. Those nations we more or less traditionally accepted as being a, a part of the Western world, I think that we would probably be honored by most of them if we were to somehow work out a withdrawal or a disengagement in Vietnam. While Richard Nixon won decisively in the New Hampshire Republican primary, McCarthy, swept along by a new breed of alienated and fighting doves from Harvard, Radcliffe, Dartmouth, and other campuses, almost overran the president, who three and a half years earlier had been elected by the largest majority in history. McCarthy lost, but by only 230 votes, at once convincing two other Democrats that Lyndon Johnson was not a sure thing. Four days later, Robert Kennedy, who had declined the race in New Hampshire, infuriated Senator McCarthy and his supporters with this announcement. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old. I run for the presidency because it is now unmistakably clear that we can change these disastrous, divisive policies only by changing the men who are now making them. Fifteen days later, on March 31st, Lyndon Johnson concluded a comprehensive address on Vietnam policy, looked over to Lady Bird Johnson, and then stunned the nation. It is true that a house divided against itself is a house that cannot stand. There is division in the American House now, and believing this as I do, I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Four days later, the nation and the world were jolted again by what can only be described as a man-made disaster. Martin Luther King, Jr., Nobel Peace Laureate and symbol of nonviolence, had interrupted preparations for his poor people's march to take part in the garbage men's strike in Memphis. At 6.30 on April 4th, Dr. King was on the balcony outside his room at the Lorraine Motel. A convicted bank robber, James Earl Ray, who had escaped from a Missouri state prison 12 months earlier, looked across through the telescopic sight of a high-powered rifle. In another room off the balcony was a young black reporter cameraman, Joe Lowe, who had been covering the Poor People's March and was one of the last persons to see the civil rights leader alive. At 6 o'clock, I went back to my room to watch the Huntley Brinkley show. I was in room 309, 
Dr. King was in room 306, less than 60 feet away. As soon as I turned on the television set, he came on the screen, speaking to the audience he had addressed the night before. He was saying very powerfully that he was ready to die. Difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live. When the program ended, I reached over to turn the set down. That was when I heard the shot ring out, and I rushed out on the balcony. I saw Dr. King lying about 40 feet away. Ralph Abernethy was there, and so was Andy Young. Police poured down the street, running with rifles. The scene was confused and frantic. An ambulance arrived, but there wasn't much anyone could do. I knew they had killed him. It was hard to believe, after all the threats and close calls, that it had finally happened here, at a motel in Memphis, Tennessee. The night King died, there were fires in 29 different states and 125 cities. Baltimore, Chicago, Kansas City, and most searing of all, Washington, less than 10 blocks from the White House. When they buried Dr. King, two Georgia mules pulled the dirt farmer's wagon which carried the plain pine coffin from Ebenezer Baptist Church through Atlanta to Morehouse College and then to Southview Cemetery. Among more than 50,000 who marched through Atlanta that day were all the presidential hopefuls, Nixon, Rockefeller, McCarthy, Humphrey, Lindsay, and one who would not be a candidate 60 days later. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Kennedy, whose eloquent tribute to King had its own irony. This is a time of shame and a time of sorrow. It is not a day for politics. I have saved this one opportunity, my only event of today, to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims are most important of all, human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed, and yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Why? Robert Kennedy, who had won the Indiana primary, lost to Eugene McCarthy in Oregon, scored his decisive victory in the California primary on June 4th, two months to the day after the King assassination. Just after midnight in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, new front-runner made his victory statement. I thank all of you who made this possible this evening, all of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned, but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, uh, brought forth all of the effort that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference 
that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment make. So I thank all of you. Those of you who are here. Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. A radio reporter for KRKD, Andrew West, followed the senator as he left the ballroom via the hotel's kitchen. Mr. Humphreys and his uh, backgrounding you as far as the delegate votes go. You can just go and start to struggle for it. Senator Kennedy has been sh Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy, oh my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. I hope they can get the gun out of his hand. <laughs> Be very careful. Get the gun. Get the gun. Get the gun. Look. Stay away from the gun. Stay away from the gun. His hand is frozen. Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. All right. That's it, Raper. Get it. Get the gun, Raper. Hold him. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. Again, the search for the killer's identity. This time, an unemployed jockey and laborer from Jordan joined the lengthening list. Lee Harvey Oswald, James Earl Ray, and now Sirhan Sirhan. Again, the conspiratorial theories with none ever established. Watching Ted Kennedy in St. Patrick's Cathedral the day of his brother's funeral, listening to the Requiem Mass, questions asked by Robert after Memphis seemed even more relevant. Like it or not, we live in times of danger and uncertainty. That is the way he lived. That is what he leaves us. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. Be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us and what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Nineteen sixty-eight was a pivotal time in the history of the world. On March twenty-first, nineteen sixty-eight, the first day of spring, and the last day of my fifteenth year, my life was about to change permanently and inextricably. 
My 16th birthday and the associated party had been announced to the entire sophomore class for weeks in advance. It was to be held at the banquet room of the local convention center. It was to be catered. A stereo system would be in place, and every girl in school had been invited to bring along their favorite records. My 12 closest buddies were invited, and my cousins, George and Dave, were not. It would be the perfect 16th birthday party. There would be fun and food and a cake and, most importantly of all, girls with presents. The icing on the cake would be no Cousin Dave. I spent the last afternoon of my 15th year masturbating with a Fredericks of Hollywood catalog that I'd stolen from my mother. Cousin Dave had shown me the technique a couple of years earlier when we were left alone at his house on New Year's Eve. He didn't appear to be very good at it, and in the interim, I'd spent many hours perfecting a routine that would serve me for my entire life. Cousin Dave was a hack with his dirty sock and one arm strained to hold up an entire centerfold. I was an innovator, employing exotic lotions and even more exotic fantasies. There was no such thing as an idle hour in my day. I had a regular cast of characters comprised of the females of my 8th, 9th, and 10th grade classes, and sometimes for variety, I would invite select movie stars to join in. The preambulate was, of course, Barbara Eden of I Dream of Genie fame. With Barbara at hand, whatever I could imagine, she could blink into existence. Well, that took careful planning and determined execution. I was closing out my 15th year with a marathon session with Barbara Eden and a chorus of regulars from Fredericks of Hollywood, a place I imagined was staffed by ingenues in naughty nighties, crotchless, cupless concubines that I could freely sample like a box of Whitman's. I was a sick kid. So immersed was I in my rich and fulfilling fantasy life that I did not see Cousin Dave standing outside my living room window, staring in at me. Cousin Dave let himself in through the kitchen. It was his grandmother's house, too, after all. Dave was chubby as a child, but started punching his weight in the ninth grade, and had gained quite a reputation as a tough. At this moment, he was laughing as deeply as I was angered. I would never know the fruition of the complexities of that fantasy. Dave had robbed me of it. He would remain my enemy for life for this act of intrusion. Then it got worse. Cousin Dave blackmailed me. If I didn't invite him to my 16th birthday party, he was going to tell the whole school what he'd just seen. Well, my face turned red and then white and then slowly back to red again as I realized that he had me. Fine, I said, and the deal was struck. He would keep his mouth closed and I would have my day in the sun. I awoke on my 16th birthday full of the spirit of someone having been released from prison after being falsely incarcerated. The chains of my youth had been cut. I was a young man now. I could drive at night and without a licensed adult in the car. I could smoke cigarettes in public. The city curfew no longer applied to me. There was a perfect sunrise over the mountains on a perfect new spring day and I was a living expression of all that perfection. I was 16. En route to Nicotine Knoll, the little hill behind the school where all the cool guys met to smoke, 
I walked through the breezeway past all the jocks and all the spirits, you know, girl jocks, and all the trophies for jock excellence. And as I walked past, I was greeted with jeers, sneers, blank stares, and whispers. Pew, ick, the head cheerleader said as I walked by. In another year, she'd be a mother, a grandmother in her 40s, and a great-grandmother in her 60s. Love abounded in the hills of Idaho. Exiting the building, I had to pass a gauntlet of toughs that leaned on their cars just outside the door. Through the cacophony, I heard the usual snippets of jerk-off and ladies' underwear magazine and pages stuck together among all the usual epithets. The sort of moronic banter that one expects of, well, of morons. If it was not clear yet that Cousin Dave had not kept his end of the bargain that he, in fact, had cast darkness on this my day of divine light. Clarity would come directly from my closest friends. My closest friends were the mob. The mob was made up of 12 core members, myself included. We smoked cigarettes and listened to the Rolling Stones, thank you. Our hair was grown to the absolute longest we could wear it without being thrown out of either our homes, our school, or both. We were the usual suspects when any act of malfeasance was committed around town. Half the time we were guilty, and 99% of the time we got away with it. We wore clothes purchased from the La Eleganza catalog, and we were decidedly not welcome in most of the better homes in town. Being the smallest in stature, I was subject to the abuses they all suffered routinely at the hands of their fathers. This was the trickle-down theory of the cycle of abuse that we would all be subject to break as adults. My closest friends made me eat dirt. They pantsed me in front of girls routinely. They stuffed me in garbage cans and threw me on the roof of the bookstore where they threw ice balls at me and dared me to jump down where I would really get it. One crisp autumn night, just for their amusement, they stripped me naked in the woods and made me dance on a stump while waving flashlights at me. Then they disappeared into the trees and hid my clothes. They left me there like that. They would steal from me and steal from the school, then plant the booty in my home so that I would get busted. One time, the closest of my closest friends, Phil Dickinson, choked me to the point of unconsciousness. They did these things, and more, for years because it made them laugh. In their defense, I was needy beyond reason as a child. I was so desperate for friends that I was the only guy in town who would hang out with Stinky Dougal. Daryl Dougal came from a welfare family of seven kids, all of whom wet the bed into their teen years. Daryl slept on a concrete floor in a storage area of his basement, where every night he climbed into the same sleeping bag he had wet in the night before. I went to his home every day as we grew up. I'd awaken him, and we would walk to school together. The smell in the basement was horrific. The walk to school gave an opportunity for him to air out. As a member of the mob, Daryl too rejected my friendship and even resorted to hitting me in the face to get rid of me. The mob was, however, the only group in school that would tolerate me at all. The other groups rejected me on sight. I had a reputation. I tried too hard to be liked. 
and I wasn't very good at it. When I finally made my way to Nicotine Knoll, the mob was already snickering at me. Cousin Dave was with them, although they were not his group. He was a tough. And that was it then. The whole school knew. I had been caught doing what they all did, but I had been caught. Pariah is a kind word for their perspective of me. The mob was actually a little easy on me, offering advice on how not to get caught. A bell rang in the school, and it was time for first period. Now, it bears worth stating that being smart in an environment such as this was not good, and it did not help my situation at all. My IQ was higher than all my teachers, and my test scores shot the bell curve all to hell for all the students. One teacher said she wanted to cut off my head and give my brain to someone who'd use it. Some of the teachers just gave up and resorted to hitting me to try to beat some sense into me. One fellow, a PE teacher and former lineman for the Green Bay Packers, used to give me five to seven good sound whacks with a plank every morning at roll call. He said it was for all the things I did for which I didn't get caught. An immigrant, Alphonse Alt, was the lowly son of a German shepherd and her human mate. Not five minutes into first period, I was called into the vice principal's office. That was not too terribly out of the ordinary. As I said, I was one of the usual suspects. I walked into the office of the vice principal, a fat, sweaty little man, who had permanent wrinkles in his suits and salt stains imbued under the arms. He lowered the standard of education in Coeur d'Alene to the status of his suits, shabby, cheap, and ill-fitting. I sat in his office and waited until he finally waddled in with his rolling gait and one cock eye. He was blunt and to the point. Joey, you're 16 years old today, and we think, uh, you know, you can legally quit school. Now, I'm not going to throw you out because you haven't done anything to warrant it, but I still think you should quit. I mean, you're just wasting everybody's time here, and, and, and you're never going to mount to anything anyways. I didn't know if he was serious or if this was just some fat, sweaty attempt at reverse psychology, a class I'm certain he failed. But I left his office and returned to algebra class and a rather surprised-looking algebra teacher. The humiliation of the morning wore off as the day progressed. People were still snickering at me in the hallway, but they were tired of me now and frothing for new blood by lunchtime. I didn't care anymore. Tonight was my 16th birthday party, and they'd all be jealous for years to come after they saw it. I kept smiling at all the girls with a knowing sort of see-it-tonight look in my eyes, and the girls would turn and look at one another and go, Ew. But since it wasn't about me, I wasn't listening, so... The party was to start at 7. I arrived fashionably late at 7.15. I wanted everyone to yell, Hooray! when I walked through the door. That was my vision. And then I'd have a Coke and mingle a little and then go to the gift table and spend an hour unwrapping presents. And then after that, they could put on some music and eat and dance, and that's how it'd go. When I walked into the banquet room, it was better than my vision. Since I worked at the hotel as a busboy and a dishwasher, and my mother was a bookkeeper and did all the payroll, well, the staff had gone the extra mile and really dolled up the place. The tables were draped, as was the piano. 
There were three huge platters of hors d'oeuvres, deviled eggs, little chicken legs, fruit, and veggies with five different bowls of dips. There was a huge tub filled with ice and bottles of soda, and they even hung a mirrored ball from the ceiling and lit it for the effect. I stood there for a moment and looked around like the little Martian from the cartoons, you know. Where's the hooray? What happened to the earth-shattering hooray? There, lined up and seated against the wall, were six guys. Only two were in the mob, the other four were older guys, who I didn't know well and didn't particularly like. Phil Dickinson was there along with Gary Dingman. They were invited. Cousin Dave was there along with his older brother, George, who was likewise not a welcome guest. Mom had invited them. Dingman's older brother, Rod, and a friend of his were there as well. I hardly knew them at all, but they just sat there with sinister smiles and demanded to know where the records were and where the girls were. I told them the girls were supposed to bring the records. They got threatening with me and told me I'd better go call some girls. I went to the lobby and bought a roll of dimes for the payphone. Five dollars was four hours of work in those days. I went to the phone booth to call every girl in my class. It didn't take too long when the whole phone book was only 26 pages. It took less than 10 calls to figure out that none of them were coming. I went back to the banquet room to announce the news. It was Cousin Dave's betrayal that had soured the girls, I surmised. It couldn't be me. <laughs> I was saved from the embarrassment of sharing the bad news. My guests had left. But before they did, they'd thrown food and sprayed soda all over the walls and floor of the banquet room. There were chicken wings in the piano, the tone arm of the record player was bent, the mirrored ball was dented and laying on the floor. With their feet, they had ground deviled eggs and dip into the carpet and thrown the food onto the walls and ceiling tiles. It took me four hours to clean it all up. Afterward, I stole a couple of beers out of the cooler in the restaurant and walked alone to the beach. The lake was cold and black. But I took solace that while I had the lake, I was not alone. And so ended my 16th birthday and began my 16th year. Now that's the end of part two. Please subscribe to get the next chapter and never miss an episode of The Boombox Show. I'm Joseph Dean Coburn. Thanks for listening. So, 20th century. This is The Boombox Show. Baby, if you got the rock, I got to be your rocking horse. Baby, think you like the road, and make me your digging hole. You're shaking the world when it's time to crash. Guess I got to shake myself And you need some love You must have the blues And but the one thing A good man can do Is do the shade The rustic shade Man, you the shade Yeah, I'm just a way to do that.
oldest guy. His name is Mick. Now he don't care when he ain't got no chick. It do the shit. The last thing shake. Yes, it do the shit.
crashes. The Boombox Show. Me and my friend Billy Heaney, we're about the same age, you know, I'm 37, man. It was about 10 years ago. We're about 27, you know? And we were hanging around in the bar where we grew up. <laughs> and so we were talking to each other, you know, reminiscing. And specifically one night, at this particular time, me and Heaney were reminiscing about teenage masturbation. Plain old adolescent hardcore jacking off, man. That's all I was We were, you know, talking about little secrets and shit and everything. We were older now and everything. And uh, we were talking about who you used to think of. Because we didn't know that we fantasized. We thought we thought about people. A lot of guys thought about movie stars. And a lot of guys thought about girls in the neighborhood. I always did because they seemed more possible, you know? Hey, this could happen. <laughs> Brings up a few, doesn't it? <laughs> and while we're talking, this is so beautiful, because it wouldn't be funny if he didn't really say it to me. And he says, Did you ever do Betty Ryan? I said, Yeah. He said, How was she, man? Well, I believe in uh, masturbation. I think if God had intended us not to masturbate, he would have made our arms shorter. Yeah? <laughs> hey, I can't reach nothing. Come here. Hey, give me a hand, will you? Come here, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Hey, you want a job? <laughs> That's how phrases are started, man. Well, I just think if you're going to masturbate, man, you know, like, well, treat yourself right. Don't just drag yourself in there again and use yourself. Man. Bring home flowers. Man. How about a movie and a quiet dinner for one? And be coy with yourself, you know? I don't wanna. Oh, come on, honey. For me? It's all you ever think about. One thing I never did was accept money from myself, you know? I never bought any, boy. One time I caught myself with another hand. <laughs> never let your left hand know. Big trouble. There's another little part of uh, pre-adolescent sexuality. Uh, pre-adolescent good feelings. Something just, just on the threshold of innocence and wonder and so it's it's little girl getting involved with the banister it's quite innocent it's quite nice it's quite okay but it's especially built for her young males can go up against any flat surface they want little girl seeks the banister out the banister knows the banister is sensitive to all of this but you'll see the girl over there what, what are you doing at the banister just talking mom Oh, what's the use? Mom, Dad, 
I'd like you to meet the banister. <laughs> what do you do for a living, son? I'm a handrail. Think you could support my daughter? I'll support anyone who'll hold the handrail. <laughs> That's right, the handrail loves it. The banister wants to be slid down. You girls, take a chance. Don't cheat, don't go down sideways, side saddle, both legs off to the left. It's like premature withdrawal, it's like dry humping, doesn't mean anything. Bannister wants you to straddle up good and come on down! Because TV sucks. Is the Boombox Show? She's a quicksilver girl, a lover of the world. She spreads her wings and she's free. She's a quicksilver girl. A lover of the world She's seen every branch On the tree Drugs aren't an escape, they're a trap. I'm talking about heroin and barbiturates. Anyone who wants to use them is on a dead end street. 
I think it's time we all got together and took a good look at what drugs are doing to a lot of your friends, and my friends, here and across the sea. If you really love them, tell them not to use dangerous drugs.
Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm There's a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road Yeah 
Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone An actor out alone Riders on the storm Sitting on the highway in a broken van Thinking of you again Guess I'll have to hitchhike to the station With every step I'll see your face Like a mirror looking back at me Saying you're the only one Making me feel I could survive And so glad to be alive Nowhere to run, not a guitar to play Messed up inside and it's been raining all day Since she wound up way Manhattan Island Serenade Sitting on the highway in a broken van Thinking of you again Guess I'll have to hitchhike down a highway With every step I'll see your face Like a mirror looking back at me Saying you're the only one Making me feel I could survive so glad to be alive Nowhere to run and not a guitar to play 
Messed up inside and it's been raining all day Sends you well away Manhattan Island Serenade Sends you well away Manhattan Island Serenade Listen where you play. The boombox. Listen where you work. The boombox. Log of the Starship Enterprise, Stardate 5943.7. Captain Kirk, this is Lieutenant Uhura. Mr. Spock is ready to patch in. Go ahead, Mr. Spock. I'm on the surface of the destroyed barbarian planet now, Captain. Destroyed? What do you see, Mr. Spock? The surviving inhabitants are in a dreadful condition. It seems they can't control their limbs, and their minds are dull and useless. Fascinating. They seem to be in a state identical to that curious 20th century Earth disease called hard drug abuse. I suspect it has destroyed all meaningful life on this wretched planet. A tragic find, Mr. Spock. As a Vulcan, I find the need for hard drugs to be totally illogical. But as a half-human Spock, surely you can appreciate the suffering that hard drug abuse causes. We can only hope that other civilizations will not make the same mistake.
Hey, asswipe, where'd you get that Sansuchi amplifier? I got it at stereos and stuff, jag off, and it only cost me $9.99. $9.99? What a deal! For the amplifier and the tuner? Yeah, and that's not all shit face. I also got an anti-static record cloth and two HLH Crowd Quadio Quattro Quirk 3000 speakers that you're drooling all over, scumbag. Only $9.99? I must be some sort of Neanderfuck for not having gone down the stereos and stuff and got one already. I gotta fire some money. Gotta get my head on my ass sometimes. If you've got your head up your ass about stereos, come to Stereos and Such, located at the Bergen Shopping Mall. Come on, goddammit, excuse me, but this is ridiculous. We've been, get, we've been putting out, not put up. Put up or shut up. We're going off the air if you don't do it. I mean, you're only hurting yourself. All right, I'm sorry. Nobody's calling now because I blew up. Now, I'm sorry. I'll play a record or something. But please, somebody call 555-2150. I'm sorry for yelling. I apologize. <laughs> The program that never crashes. The Boombox. The music you hear on the Boombox show, as I say at the top of every program, is loaned for the purposes of promotion. That text is stamped indelibly on every record and CD that was ever given to me over a period of 30 years. See, I was a disc jockey, a fairly insignificant role in society, until I explained to Seattle audiences that I was the first full-time employee at KISW-FM. The late Lee Michaels and I started KISW, Rockin' Stereo 100, in 1971, to go up against KOL-FM, where I had just interned the preceding couple of years. KISW was owned by Danny Kay and Lester Smith. Yes, that Danny Kay. K. Smith Enterprises, who also owned KJR in Seattle, K. Smith Studios in Seattle, the first major recording studio in Washington State, and what was at the time the largest concert production company in the world, Concerts West. So, to say that I had some connections in the music business was a fair statement. It wasn't until 1974 that I went to work as the general ticket sales manager for the West Coast Theater Corporation. We managed the Paramount Theaters in Seattle and Portland, along with the Warner's Theater in Fresno. But again, taken individually, these are fairly insignificant roles. I also spent four years at KZOK AM and FM as production manager. I hosted the jazz shows on KISW and KZOK, and was the stage announcer for the Seattle Paramount, beginning in 1972. Now, you add all that up, and although I was invisible and anonymous, I played a significant role in the music business in Seattle for a short period of time a long time ago. Jerry Morris, an independent record promoter, used to say of me, be nice to Coburn. He's heavy sometimes. Now that you've been insulted by me talking about myself, permit me to say that the music you hear on the Boombox show may be songs you have not heard in a very long time and may never hear again. And now you know why. I'm Joseph Dean Coburn. I created the Boombox show to celebrate the baby boomer generation, the music, the era, and the culture. If there's something you'd like to hear, 
let me know in the comment section. Subscribe to hear it and share the show with your friends so they can hear it too. In any case, thanks for listening. Existentially speaking, without listeners, I don't exist. So, you mean the world to me. Thank you. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds if we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails.